whenever big Game of Thrones news happens, I feel like I'm the last to know. Or like I feel like it's my cousins that are always texting me about it. And that's <laughs> how I get like my up-to-date information. Mm-hmm. And today was no different. Usually in those cases, you're kind of smug about having already known that information for six or seven months. But today there was actually breaking news for Game of Thrones. Yeah. So for once I was surprised, which is kind of fun. Welcome to our <laughs> Halloween special, everyone. Ooh. It's very spooky. We're starting it off with spooky bad news, and we're joined by our friend and esteemed co-conspirator in the Song of Ice and Fire, Trouble and Mayhem. I like that, co-conspirator. I'm going to demand to be introduced (laughs) that way henceforth. Put it on your business card. Precisely. How are you feeling? Well, thank you so much for having me, guys, especially on uh, this spookiest and best of holidays. Victorian, you're on Greyjoy, canceled prequels. I mean, what more could you All ask All flavors for? of doom. Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. ended months ago, everybody. And and yet... Here we are still. Like a, <laughs> like a zombie are. from the grave. It's back for the brains of your discourse. So today we learned, Hannah texted me, that's how I learned. And um, I looked at the internet and saw that it had been on the minds of uh, people for a while. And uh, I felt bad not having that, that first moment thrust upon me, but I just scrolled and caught up with the, everything that I should be feeling at this point with the long night, I've codenamed. I don't know if it was ever officially code worded out of the long night. I know that George wanted wanted the series to be titled that Blood Moon is over. So what's the point in even talking about it? I guess there is none. It's just interesting that the news of that came on the same day that David and Dan pulled out of Star Wars. Like, I just feel like there was a lot of Game of Thrones feelings happening today with all of that because I think that that brought up a lot of thoughts about the last season and so on the heels of that conversation this afternoon learning that the prequel that was filmed um the the, the pilot episode was filmed was canceled and there isn't any official word on it HBO hasn't said anything so we don't have a lot of information but um Another one bites the dust. There's no direct link, obviously, between, you know, Dave and Dan not getting their Star Wars and the news about the prequel. But it feels like somehow and it feels like Mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that makes you want to come up with like a grand summarizing statement about how entertainment works today. It's that kind of that kind of day. And I'm not super surprised that the long night went down. Even the even the perhaps phony title of Blood Moon speaks to a kind of fantasy that D&D said they were trying to shy away from that might not necessarily cross over. And a show about the apocalypse, I think, has a problem compared to like a show building up to the apocalypse, like Game of Thrones, where the long night is at the end and something you reach for. And I can see why they may have wanted to stick with more Fire and Blood spinoffs, because that, that gives you more characters to build it around rather than an event. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. That's that's all still completely up in the air. Yeah, I was always a bit weirded about the excitement and approach to... I, I, Honestly, prequels in general, when we're talking about stories that I love, I'm always more excited about the potential for things to unfold in the future. And with how the series ended, I feel like they were obviously opening themselves up for that potentiality. And to go back into the past, I've always been kind of confused about in the first place. Even though it's worth getting excited about to see cool stuff that we like, we've explored that for years. Hannah and I have talking about all the potential stuff for Potter. But at the end of the day, I'm more excited about getting stories that we haven't seen the ending to already sort of tangentially, even if it builds the grandeur of the moment. I completely agree. I think the main value of prequels is showing 
how those likely future attempts are going to go, like providing a backstory to work from. Like that's why I uh, like kind of like the Star Wars prequels because they show how it's how the Republic that you're trying to build at the end of original trilogy is likely going to fall apart because mm. this is how it went with the last Republic. And I think there is something you could do with Westeros in that. There's still a lot we don't know after Game of Thrones about the others, about the Valyrians, and you could you could come up with a story that's kind of an interesting reflection of the main story, but. I mean, we've already seen Danny blow up a city, so it's hard to it's hard right. to build on that in a lot of ways. And I think that's maybe that's <laughs> something of what they're struggling with. Well, and we've seen at least one army of the dead, right. and it lasted an episode. So I'm curious as to how they would be excited about extending it for the length of a new series. True, we could one, learn more things about and... it, but aesthetically, what are you waiting for when we've already seen that size of a zombie swarm? Are you going to have a, just a bigger one, or or one that may be accurate to the text? Like, let's bring the let's uh, imagine that's too adapting. Much to ask for. The version of the Iron Throne that we all wish that we could see adapted, that version of what George's others, of George's true White Walkers put on screen would be super exciting for me. But I I haven't been confident that 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 was the show they were making from day one. That's a fair point. I think one of the benefits, though, and something that I was excited about going so far back is that the opportunity to mess with the canon that we see it now, whether it's in A Song of Ice and Fire or the TV show, is much less likely when you're so far removed from the actual show itself. I feel Good like point. it's a safer bet that I'm going to be less disappointed in because there isn't too much to build off of or draw from. And so that's what I was excited about, something like that. Like a fresh look at everything. Mm-hmm. So, but that's like my pessimistic view of the whole thing. But I mean, we still have the potential of the Fire and Blood Targaryen prequel story, which is still kind of um, far enough back where we get to play in that more, not fantasy. I mean, it's not going to be quite as fantasy or fantastical as we would with The Long Night, but I think that's still, it's an exciting prospect. I think it depends on how the conversation about these chapters go in general. Like, what is what are, where what is magic? What is power that we're able to access? And however that folds into the reality of Westeros, I think feeds into the kind of story that Targaryen prequel ends up being. As far as how I look at it, or at least as far as how I'm excited about it. Like, if they were accessing potential mysteries, or if there's power, you know, outside of the geological stuff and outside of what they're able to do with the money and influence they have on everyone in Essos. Magic is about power. It's a metaphor for power when you use it right. And that's what George has always driven out, especially when it comes to Danny and her dragons. He's talked about that very clearly, that originally, you know, he wasn't even going to have dragons. And now he he does as an extension of the story's struggles with power and, um, and the more grounded storylines. The magic is kind of an, an addition and a reflection of that. I think, you know, the many people have said this, that, like, like, you know, the army of the dead feels like, just an exaggeration of all the armies we see throughout the entire story, just the most extreme possible version. Like when you get the broken man speech and Septon Marable talks about some Lord comes up and shouts that you are his now. That's just a version of what the, the others do with their zombies. And I think uh, getting, at, getting at that idea is something George has done really well and in a way you can make the magic elements of fantasy seem not boring to people. I mean, I, I love magic just as, as an aesthetic, just reading about it and looking at right. it and watching it unfold. But I get, I know for a lot of people that's not the case. So it's thinking about it as just an extension of power, I think is how you sell it. Make it more accessible to people who aren't typically rooted in fantasy. Exactly. To people who don't do D&D campaigns for fun. That's how you get people into spells. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that the, the pilot just didn't land on these accounts? 
Or do you think that there's some weird cosmic synchronicity that's going on with the Twitter thread that popped a handful of days ago now at the time of recording about David and Dan's overall attention to the series? And then now, like you guys said, the subsequent exiting of them from Star Wars, which was potentially the reason why Game of Thrones was it's what we not blamed really it on. rushed <laughs> it's what we blamed in the it first on. <laughs> place, but just sort of like thought of outside of itself. Uh, I mean... All of it at once. I wanted to tweet something earlier. It was a little bit weird. Just the, the gif of the guy going, it's fine. Everything's fine with the house burning down. It's kind of the way it feels right it's now. Te- it's tempting to make one narrative out of it all, but I think it's a lot of narratives coming together so, and, and colliding. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any one reason that, you know, that Dave and Dan aren't doing their Star Wars. I certainly don't think it's largely or mostly because of that thread by just by one person a few days before what seems like a decision was probably in the works for a while. I think, you know, we seize on the front-facing bits. We seize on the stuff we most readily see and are most readily accessible to us, in large part because we don't like acknowledging how much power and entertainment gets done completely out of our view for reasons we're never going to understand. Well, and I think that also we want to control the narrative from our own bias view. Sure. I think because we've just been so invested. I mean, me, a Game of Thrones fan, blaming David and Dan for their focus on Star Wars, why the last seasons were horrible. Like, that's such an easy out and such a funny joke to make that now that they're not doing that either, it's kind of like, well, I got to turn it into whatever, whatever I can turn it into to, like, be comfortable with that narrative. But I don't know. It's interesting. I've also never seen Star Wars, so <laughs> like, what, what do I know? Got nothing to lose. What do I care? <laughs> yeah, here I am, caring. When so. we first met Emmett, it was about, I mean, when I say it was about, I think we just put it in the overall bin of Song of Ice and Fire, but it was specifically we were talking about Euron Greyjoy, and I was looking for things related to Euron Greyjoy on the internet, and today I was looking for another copy of the Forsaken Potentially because we have that Google Doc and I, I, the formatting was tough because I was trying to copy and paste quotes into my notes to later talk about. And I was like, this isn't working. It's pasting with all these weird characters. So I have to search for it somewhere else. And I'm looking on the internet like, how do I find another copy of the Forsaken? And when I looked it up, it was uh, like an old, there was an old Tumblr post from you. And it had like a couple hundred people had reblogged it. And it just brought me back into a time machine. I don't know if that was the exact moment. I don't think it was, but it was somewhere around the time where um, we first started talking about this stuff on the internet together. And now bringing it full circle, we're doing these two sample chapters for our Halloween episode. And they're dank, they're dark, they're murky. It's a perfect time. I just think that much like those moments, the universe has sort of brought itself together now for us to discuss this and to finally, I think for me and you come to a conclusion, whether or not this practical magic and real magic issue is solved by potentially the forsaken, or you can help me make up my mind whether or not this is the same kind of story that I thought it was all those years ago. Or whether it's something completely different. Well put, sir. I remember meeting on exactly that topic and talking about it long through the night. And yeah, I, I, obviously, yeah, the Forsaken. It's not officially released. It's only we only have a transcript that I helped transcribe from the time at the at Balticon that George read it. But it kind of fits the chapter that it only exists in like this fragmented 
whispered, passed around form, because it's that kind of chapter. It feels like a nightmare. It sh- it feels like it should only exist in like fragmented form, like something you uncover, like something out of House of Leaves or the Blair Witch Project or something. Like <laughs> you find the, the the only copy of the Forsaken surrounded by all the bodies of the people who killed for it. Like, <laughs> that feels appropriate for this chapter, which makes it awesome that it is not officially released and that we're all working off of this like not bootleg because it's legit, but the fact that. It hasn't been officially released. I feel like with this chapter specifically, it makes it even better. Hannah, you were in the room and George read this chapter to the public for the first time. Yes, sir, I was. Emmett, were you there too? I was not. I'll regret it to my dying day. Damn it. <laughs> Thanks, Dang. Zach. As will I. I'm not trying to call you out, but Hannah, Opening as the, the, wounds. the representative specialist on the Forsaken now that I've had my soliloquy about Emmett, now you please tell us what what was this like to experience not only – I've been in a room with George speaking one time, and I think it's – probably silly as a person to talk about another person with such mystique and grandeur but you're now knee deep i think 15 minutes or so into the game of thrones podcast episode months after the uh, finale was over and the new prequels were canceled so it's probably okay for me to talk about george r R. martin in this light he has a presence about him that's just sort of infectious and Mm -hmm. his attention to detail just kind of sprouts out in real time as he talks and He's always struck me as an impressive person, but I haven't been in the room when he's described a chapter like this, let alone any chapter of the series. That's just crazy to me. It was nuts, honestly. And, you know, I've met George R. R. Martin before, like heard him talk about other things. um, And I always love to hear him speak. But I feel like with this chapter specifically, and I mean, you guys have read the chapter. You know what it's like to be sitting in that room and to hear him talking about a full suit of valyrian steel armor and things like that i at the time i had wished that i had taken better notes because i feel like when we were still kind of pulling together transcripts and notes and ideas like i wish that i had had the desire i guess to write things down but i was just so caught up in the moment and how cool it was to be sitting there and listening to a chapter like this at Balticon, surrounded by a lot of friends and in the community, it was a really, really, really cool experience, and I won't ever forget it. So, sorry. Do you guys think this book <laughs> no, will ever so come great. out? Say again, buddy. <laughs> Do you guys think this book will ever come out? If not, we'll always have the Forsaken. It's, it's, it, it, again, <laughs> so it'll, true. It'll always exist in that fragmented, incomplete form, which is kind of eerily perfect. But yeah, so I mean, true. I wasn't, I wasn't even at Ground Zero, and I still felt the ripple effect of of that. That day when he read that chapter, not only because, of course, we've been starved for new content for so long in this story, right. but because that chapter just added so much to our canon and understanding of this world. And the tone it was written in is just, it's, it's a chapter about going insane. And it's meant to make you feel like you're going insane as you, as you read it. What opened up the most for you, canon-wise, where you were like, aha, like now there's some kind of a, a, a point that was like... Was there like a point that was like poked and like all of a sudden the, all the blood streaming out? You're like, aha, there's the answer. Or was something patched up potentially? Like there was a, a, a blooded thing before and you're like, aha, well, this seals it up. I think Euron specifically going for the gods. I think that was what mm. really started opening my eyes wide. I mean, like the Valyrian steel armor that Hannah mentioned at the end of the chapter was a big whoa moment just in terms of we'd never even conceived of this object before in universe and now it's in our face. But the, the level of Euron's ambition exposed that he dreams not just of sitting on the Iron Throne, but climbing the Iron Throne to Olympus and murdering everyone. 
is <laughs> is is a hell of a, a tableau to witness and a hell of hell of a goal for a villain that's very different from any other villain we've seen on a Song of Ice and Fire. Most of whom are about like this thing happened when I was ten and I haven't been able to let go of it, so now everyone has to die. Whereas Euron is. <laughs> Whereas Euron, just, Euron doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. That's what makes him so scary. That's what makes mm-hmm. him different from Tywin or Ramsay or Littlefinger. There's not something he's trying to solve, not like some trauma in his past he's trying to undo. He just wants to eat everything. And yes. that's what the Forsaken gets across. And he's, it makes him so different from everyone else in the story. Damn. I feel like it's also interesting to get this unveiling of his true madness through his brother's eyes. Oh, yeah. I feel like that that's just a whole different, like, view, like a whole different thing. It's a perfect place to do it, too, because he's not only doing it through his brother's eyes, but he's doing it inside of his brother's mind while he's tripping balls off of Shade at the Evening. Like, we're not talking about a clinical Danny House the Undying or even really just imagining what Pyatt Pri and those guys are sipping on, clinical dose of Shade of the Evening. We're talking about, like, uh, imagine a tube grew from the chalice and it just it grew into Aaron's throat and it became an organic part of his body while he was shoving it down. Like, he, he put the whole ketchup bottle down his throat basically Ugh. and he was like all right enjoy that he and that i think that that's why Euron was very confidently like you're gonna meet your gods tonight or some god so you're gonna meet someone yeah that element is so different from the house of the undying which definitely has horror aspects to it but it also feels very alice in wonderlandish where danny's just kind of going oh that's interesting the whole time and she doesn't f- particularly feel threatened until you get to the end and she's also there voluntarily uh, with, with Aaron, there's this element of horror and abuse that makes it more in line with, like, the early Theon Reek chapters in A Dance with Dragons. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what The Forsaken really feels like, is if you took that first Theon chapter in Dance when he's down in the Dreadfort and you force-fed him acid, this is this is kind of what you get. And Euron is, is like that, a, a villain like Ramsay, but on a, on a much more cosmic level. But I think Hannah made the really important point that it's always focused through the lens of his brothers. That's what grounds it, because otherwise it would just be like reading a list of horrible things. I think just emotionally, I think with Aaron Greyjoy, you really get the sense of what it's like to have grown up with someone like this. And Euron, is his, his ambitions have flown so high, he's gone all over the world and taken all over his things, but he started here. His most like intimate acts of violation were here with his brothers. And I think that's, that's I, th- I think George understood he needed to ground Euron this way or he wouldn't be a particularly, he wouldn't, his story wouldn't have a shape, you know what I mean? If it wasn't filtered through his brothers, he would just be a nightmare and then the nightmare would end. But you need to, you need to have a dreamer for the dream to make sense. I think it's interesting to bring up, bring up Theon because I was thinking a lot about him in this chapter because both of them are, both Theon and um, Aaron are imprisoned in their own ways. I think that Theon's kind of coming out the other side and so it's much more full of hope than we see in this chapter, which like we're talking about, seems like a true and living nightmare. But it made me think a lot about the potential of if Theon had stayed with the Greyjoys and hadn't gone to live with the Starks, how he could have also potentially been wrapped up in this same sort of nightmare, um, which is a whole different thing to think about. But can't help but compare their stories a little bit as we see some of them in the sample chapters. I agree. And Theon knows something about Euron. Like when he brings up Euron in A Clash of Kings, he's terrified of him. This is yeah. this is Clash of Kings Theon when he's like swaggering and confident and just pulling his dick out at every opportunity. And even he shuts the fuck up when Euron's name is mentioned. And then in his Winds of Winter chapter, of course, you guys know he has that that vision, that memory of what's lurking behind Euron's eye patch, the black eye shining with malice, which it doesn't seem like anyone else besides him and his uncle have seen. 
in a long time. And it's it's just this this hideous thing, this like Lovecraftian nightmare that he can't quite bring himself to think about. And that's how everyone deals with this with Euron. It's like this this nightmare they they don't really want to have. And then with with uh, this, the Forsaken, you just get shoved right into it. All, all through a Feast for Crows, this this version of Euron was kind of being hinted at, but he was mostly just playing politics and trying to get the Ironborn on his side. And now that he's done that, like he's feeling increasingly. Uh, more able to let his freak flag fly, so to speak. <laughs> He's got like so many ships, <laughs> so he totally can. Why not right now? Do you think that there's potential for what happened to the Stark family in general, their their connection to not not the Starks completely, but do you think what happened to Bran specifically and his relationship with the Three-Eyed Raven, could that have happened to the Greyjoys as well, and perhaps many other families across Westeros in an attempt to maybe locate some sort of power, some sort of source in the same way that Euron is currently seemingly collecting people. I mean, Blood Raven, when he shows Bran that dream in the first book, Bran sees the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled on the spikes below. So clearly Blood Raven has been doing this for a long time, trying to forge his sword in the darkness. And people have theorized that Sweet Robin might be another case because he's got some kind of mental disability and he's in that Weirwood throne and the Eerie has a lot of similarities to the uh, the whole green seer set up north of the wall. But yeah, Euron, when he talks about in A Feast for Crows about how he, when he was a boy, he dreamed that he could fly and then he woke up and he couldn't or so the maester told him. That's exactly what happened to Bran. And Euron is called Crow's Eye, which really strongly speaks to uh, the Three-Eyed Crow's involvement. Euron's personal banner that he takes instead of the Greyjoy Kraken is of birds crowning an eye. So yeah, I think I think that is his his origin story, the reason he's like this and has is a much more sorceress inclination than the rest of his family, is that he's... He's a failed version of Bran, basically. Like, he was going to be the protagonist, but he's just too evil. So Blood Raven moved on to Bran, and now Euron is just, like, left festering as this this road they didn't take. So we're more than ever being given the context of what it means to not only the story, but particularly, like you guys were just saying, to the the ins and outs of how it affects their family. And I think that seeing how... Just zooming out from from all of this and asking the question, I guess it could be as simple as, are the gods real and do they have power? And if they don't, then who does have power and why are they using it? What purpose? In Bloodraven's case, I don't think we have a specific answer to what his agenda is at the end of all things, but... Like you said, he's been at this for a while. Well, this might not be the answer to your question at all, but something that is interesting to me as in this chapter is he's collecting these, like the warlocks, like potentially Pyat Pri, and and his brother is a holy man. Like all these types of magical, holy-ish type of men are being collected in the cells. And what he could potentially be trying to do with that. That seems that's a very deliberate choice. And um, as somebody who is not a man of faith himself necessarily, trying to maybe rein some of that in, I don't know what he's potentially going to do with that. But that's what's that so there's curious some sort of power he's, there. He's tying them to his boats, so that makes it seem like he's trying to <laughs> like channel them somehow. Or, maybe or he's making yeah, use that an extra dank point, you know, and that th- there's power in it. 
uh, you know, just the the symbology of putting his brother at the prow of a ship and him being holy men. But of course, I don't think he would go to such great lengths of collect holy, collecting holy men to make himself look more badass or to see more badass within the context of the story. So it does make more sense that there's some kind of strange channeling thing that he's doing, right? And I think it matters sure. that he's he's not just getting priests from one religion, but all of them. He wants right. all yeah. of them here. And that's really what makes Euron different, is if you look at these other magical characters, they have an axe to grind. They have a side that they're on. Melisandre works for fire. So do the other red priests. You see Blood Raven and the children of the forest all caught up in the in the history and the story of the old gods. And you, you see people with their little prophecies out in the Dothraki Sea, and you see, you know, the the, the Rorinar had their water-based magic out in Essos. And Everyone that was impaled on the Iron Throne, basically. Yes, and, and Euron is, is the one gathering them all together and seeing through them all and saying, I don't have to respect the borders or boundaries here. I don't have to pick one. I can hijack- I'm not going to pick a lane. <laughs> exactly. I can hijack all of them. And he might be closer to the truth, because if you look at like the world of ice and fire, you see this the, that Azor Ahai isn't just unique to the religion of R'hllor. It's a monomyth across Westeros, not even mm-hmm. Westeros, across the whole of Planetos, with all these different cultures having a version of that character. Euron seems to be the one character who gets that, who gets that these are all the same stories and all the same narratives being done together. And he wants to be able to cut across those boundaries. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the first he's things he's tripped he the most. He's, he's tripped the most. And, and like, <laughs> Allegedly. And, you know, what? it's the kind of thing you talk about when you take a bunch of drugs is I'm seeing through all the borders of all reality and all is one and I'm getting it. And Euron is just if the worst sadist possible had that experience. He talks about it as soon as he's introduced in A Feast for Crows. He's, I've went all over the worlds. I've seen everyone worship their different gods, horse gods, fire gods, gods of empty air. I've seen people sacrifice for them, hang them with flowers, beg for protection, protect me from the horse lords, protect me from the darkness, protect me from the silence. He is completely cutting through these ideologies, and that makes him so different from his brothers because Aaron and Victarion are devoted to their one ideology, the old way, their way of being. And Euron, as he says to Aaron in this chapter, your god is a joke. All your gods are jokes. I can replace them. And that, and that yeah, you can. I think you can see that even just in how he picks up those different priests. Like, if he was really all in on Shade of the Evening, he'd just have the warlocks, right? He'd be all about that. He'd be like, I'm the new, like, undying. I'm this new sorcerer. But he doesn't just have them. He doesn't just have R'hllor priests. He doesn't just have Septons. He wants it all. I think that he, like the Three-Eyed Raven, understands the use of psychedelics to interface with someone like Aaron or someone like Bran. And that his belief in the power of the people that he's collecting isn't necessarily connected to their connection with deities, more so to some inexplicable channeling of some force, potentially, or maybe he really does believe in it, I don't know. But I think that it's clear that he's manipulating Aaron in a way that Melisandre manipulates us with her glamours. You know what I mean? Like, that seems to be his his whole agenda with his brother is to perform, 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 seem a little bit more scary. And that's sort of half of what he is on the inside, just kind of like bloated hot air being led by the audacity that isn't restricted by being scared of what God might do when you strike someone down. Because like he says in this chapter, he struck so many people down, not to mention his brothers and nothing's happened. Do you, do you think that because Uranus has this like godless approach to everything, do you think that that makes... Aaron see him as more nightmarish than he actually is because he's a fanatic and because he is a true believer that through that lens, it makes Euron, I don't want to say worse than he is because 
I think we see pretty clearly at the, at the end of the chapter, like the type of power that he wields. But if there's potentially some sort of bias in there because he um, doesn't believe in anything. I think there's definitely a layer of that. Euron is trying to make this personal. That's why he shows up in the guise of Ergon. The one brother who Euron didn't kill, Aaron killed Aragon. They were playing the finger dance back and forth, and Aaron threw the knife that led to the wound that festered the killed Aragon. So he's obviously super guilty about that. Euron knows that and is exploiting it. And yeah, I think no, no one but Aaron would shriek and wake up at the point in the nightmare where the drowned god dies. That's specifically for him. That's specifically a nightmare for him. This god you rebuilt yourself around, you thought could protect you from me. I've killed it and sacrificed it. I definitely think Euron is tailoring it, but... There are a bunch of images in the Dream and the Forsaken and a bunch of allusions to Euron's plan that are not about Aaron and not even about their relationship. And it's more like more like Danny in the House of the Undying, like Aaron just glimpsing the larger picture as it flies past him. Right. Like when he sees the uh, the Ironborn boats burning. He doesn't he doesn't linger on that. But that's a pretty clear vision of where Euron's trying to go, that he's got this entire fleet behind him. But he is he is lying when he promises to deliver them Westeros. They are they are a sacrifice, just like the uh, priests he's tying to the prowls. If the gods aren't real, then what's all this about? If we're making people trip out on Shade of the Evening and Jojen Pace, then for what? Well, I mean, the gods aren't real, but the, the archetypes are. And so it's I think it's maybe less about gods and about people trying to be gods. And I think Euron, Euron might exemplify that process. But I think that's what the story of the Valyrians probably is, too, if we ever get it. And it's probably what the story of the White Walkers is. I mean, if, if what we saw in season six is canon, which it probably is in some respect— then the others are the ultimate example of humanity trying to be something more than humanity and in the process making themselves something less than humanity. And I, th- I think that's I think we're kind of seeing that through Euron because George isn't particularly interested, I think, in religion in itself. I think he's interested in it like magic as like a, a vector of power, as a, as a way of talking about power. So these are basically different frames and inside of Westeros, some people – like Blood Raven, understand the Werewood Net and are able to access it, whatever its consciousness is, whatever its function is, in a way that other people, potentially in places like Ashai, have been able to do the same exact thing. You think that's possible? Yeah, I think Ashai and um, North Beyond the Wall seem like the two poles, you know, like the the ultimate ice and fire locations, the ultimate North and East uh, places. We obviously know Beyond the Wall much better, but. But again, Euron says he's been to a shy, but he also has that he has this icy pale skin. He looks like a White Walker. He doesn't look like any of his brothers. That's what he looks like, this elegant, refined, ancient, horrible being. He's got the blue lips from the, the warlock drug. But you know, what else gives you gives you blue lips? Extreme cold. So he's got this kind of fusion of like fire and ice stuff going on, which, you know, the only other character like that is Jon Snow. But Jon Snow comes from a place of like reconciliation, love between fire and ice. You know, like he's a, he's a he's a hope for the future. And Euron comes from this place of saying, "Oh, I can burn people to death and freeze people to death. I don't have to choose just one way of horribly <laughs> inflicting myself on the world. It's going to be all of them at once." Which is really what makes him so dangerous because zealots Ugh. zealots like Damper you can fool, you can play with. They have an ideology you can identify and work with. But Euron is just going to keep shifting. He's like a like a cancer cell that keeps changing its its nature every time you come up with a new cure for it. You're never going to be able to pin him down. So it seems like he doesn't really have his mind made up then. He, he doesn't have his mind made up or he's he's decided that they're all the same thing hmm. and he can and he can just make make use of all of them, which again is the sort of thing you think when you've taken way too many drugs for too long. <laughs> you start thinking of everything in the universe as like one perfect shining mode of power connected to everything else. 
And, you know, some people get to that experience and just bask it in. Euron weaponized it because that's just the kind of person he is. He's just a, he's a walking bad trip of a person. And you, you can just see him because because like the, the, the visions that Euron has in The Forsaken or that Danny has in The House of the Undying, like that's Euron's whole life. Like he walks around like that. Mm-hmm. This is him 24-7. He's in that mode. So, of course, he thinks he's going to climb Olympus and, you know, take over Valhalla. Because he's he's been tripping twenty four seven for what seems like years, and no one has stopped him. And he's no had, one stopped he's him. Swaggered his way through all of this, and a lot like a lot like Aaron has sort of found his way to the comfort to be able to walk into the sea. Mm. To me, the guy's going going crazy, and it's like you couldn't go crazy in Westeros and be so influential unless you were born into this family of nobility at pretty much any point of being born in this family. Otherwise you would have just faded into oblivion, but this guy's found a way to feed and water himself this whole time, even though he's been slowly seemingly losing his mind. And I mean, he had a rough go of it, but still it's just funny how all the different parts are lining themselves up. And it's cool to me how more literal and less mysterious this has become as the story has progressed, as since we met these guys in this way in a feast for crows, and now we're getting this sample chapter and getting much more revealed about their relationship and how it all works together. It's like, Hmm, all of that stuff, even the stuff North of the wall, like we're talking about, seems like there's a, an expiration date on its curiosity. Not that it's not going to be satisfying, but just that this great potential unknown, you know, is as real as the relationship with these two brothers and the stuff that's happened with them and the drugs that he's force feeding him. But there's that weird thing where he's in his brain. Yep. Yep. He's he's controlling part of his vision. And I haven't made up my mind how I feel about that yet. It's been really easy not to have to have to made up. uh, It's been easy not to have to make up my mind. For so long, but I really don't want to feel that way anymore. Like, do you think when and we've talked about this showdown for a long time, we've probably mentioned it on the show a hundred times outside of, of uh, the high tower. Like, do you think that he's going to use practical effects or he's going to use real effects? Like, is he going to put blood <laughs> in the water to make crazy shit happen? So he, is he going to do the King's moot again, basically with the horn and the majesty and the free gifts and the don't look at what I'm doing right here while I'm doing this. Is that, is that what's going to happen or, or is what he's doing inside of his, inside of this, uh, inside of the silence feeding shade of the evening to his brother. See, this is, it's so wiggly. He's literally feeding him shade of the evening. So I can't take any of it seriously. And yet Melisandre and Mance Raider and Rattleshirt. I mean, what the fuck, dude? Yeah, I mean, it's... Again, yeah, a lot of it is the drug and a lot of it is is what Aaron brings to the table. But, like, Euron over the course of this chapter, it feels like he's shedding a skin. You know, like that political skin he was wearing all through Feast. It feels like it's slowly going away. Like, his, his black eye patch is gone. Now he's wearing a red eye patch. When Aaron calls, like, his, his, the eye behind it, the blood eye in his vision. So, like, it, it's coming out. And now he's wearing the Valyrian steel armor. So, I think, mm-hmm. I think the Euron we met in Feast was a disguise he was wearing. That's why he was wearing the eye patch in the first place. He was trying to appeal to pirates and win an election among pirates. And that's why he was giving out the gold <laughs> and using Dragonbinder just to impress people. And now, it's like Euron Light. Exactly, exactly. And now, now that's done. Now he, now he doesn't have to make the promises anymore. Like any good politician, he can immediately start going back on them and screwing over the people who got him into power. And I think 
I think the Forsaken is showing us that transition as he's kind of standing on the threshold and about ready to become. I imagine that this battle he's going into, so at the end of this battle, he's strapping these priests to his prowess, he's wearing Valyrian steel armor, and he's going into battle with the Red Wine fleet, the main uh, fleet of Westeros, really. And, um, yeah, I, I get the feeling he's going to at least try at that point to make it his, his coming out party as a monster, so to speak. But when you say that, do you think, and I'm not asking you as you need to have the answer, like, hey, what does Euron do? You better not answer incorrectly. Right. I'm just, what do you think? Do you think that he's going to pull out some real chops, that he knows something that's super interesting, or it's going to be more SFX? I mean, what did what did Mad Eris say? That he, or what did Jamie say about Mad King Eris? That he didn't expect to die. That he expected to rise again from the ashes and be reborn as a dragon. I don't think Euron is... is reaching for exactly that but i think he's taking the whole only death may pay for life logic to its horrible extent you know like he's thinking okay so then i'm just going to sacrifice not just one person here not just one person here but all of my people at once and that is going to produce this this just giant ball of power that i can absorb and enter and 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 become and whether that i don't whether that's going to work i i doubt it works completely as he's hoping whether or not that opens a portal in the water and an endless fountain of souls goes in both directions and things really start happening. That's the imagery you see in this chapter. And I'm at a hard time believing that we're not going to see something like that. I have a hard time believing that the imagery in this chapter is just a cheat because generally George has not worked like that. He set up things in imagery that you don't understand the first time through, but it's never like he goes, actually, I'm taking that back. So I, I think we're going to see something something disastrous happen when these two fleets meet. Yes. tentacles and blood magic and all sorts of horror. And then if, if, if and then if Aaron dies in the process, our POV on Euron from there might be Sam because he's nearby in Old Town. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask next, though, is if what happened, yeah, how we see Euron as he continues forward because he doesn't have his own, like, POV in wins. Once damp hair inevitably dies. Like, what? Yeah. Right, what kind of lens we're going to be able to see him through and what happens when he gets through the Red Wine fleet and then continues on to potentially meet up with Victarion or you think about Daenerys and all these other different players coming in, um, him in Old Town. I think that there's like so much potential for what Euron's going to barrel over uh, through the rest of the story that is one of the most exciting things. To I me. agree. Old Town's awesome. It's full of so much crazy monsters and lore and its history. It's a perfect place for someone like Euron with the it's weird maze maker history and the deep ones who were there. The, the high towers who run the city are currently up to some weird magical nonsense up in the clouds. And we know that <laughs> we know from the end of A Feast for Crows that Euron is trying to get into Old Town. His men like captured a ship and like put on disguises and tried to like open a gate and get inside and when Sam finds that out, the guy who's telling about it says, yeah, these, this is different. These are no mere reavers, he says. This is not pirates like the past. This is invasion. They're coming to stay. So I think after Euron does whatever kind of blood magic shenanigans he gets up to with the Red Wines, he's coming for Old Town next. And we will see that uh, through through Sam's eyes. And yeah, I mean, yeah, there are so many so many directions he could go from there uh, in terms of, yeah, Victarion and Daenerys and all these characters in his in his story. But that's that's, I think, his general direction. Uh, is 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 getting up to more blood horrors in the reach. What do you think about these in-universe, out-of-universe gods, like the Pale Child, and the potential for it to have a a larger implication to the con- sort of connective tissue of George's overall study of, of sorry, the overall study of George's work and how that might influence the stuff that's happening in Song of Ice and Fire? 
I think they're useful archetypes when you're looking at the characters in the story, but I, I don't think they're literally going to come down and, you know, touch and interfere with the characters. George has said he's not particularly interested in that. I think it's more, more about context and more about parallels for what the character, the present day characters are going through. Like you can look at the King's Moot and see it like, as a parallel, as, as like as a microcosm for the entire story. Like Aaron, when he comes out of the ocean, describes color as coming back into the world. Like it's the beginning of time at, at, at this dawn and the banners are starting to flap and everyone comes together for this meeting of deciding who's going to lead them. It's like humanity is coming together to pick its, its first king and you have the first factions fighting with each other back and forth. And then Euron shows up with Dragonbinder and the horn blows three times. And what do we know that a horn blowing three times indicates? The White Walkers, as Sam tells us in Storm of Swords. Three horns are the, are the warning blast for the other's approach. So it's like Euron is is playing the part of the Lion of Night. He's playing the part of Night's King. He's he's in that little microcosm. He's the role of the Apocalypse showing up to, to interrupt the fighting, the infighting among the factions. And so I think that's a lot of what George is going for with characters like the Lion of Night or the Pale Child or the Grey King or the Big Daddy of all, Azor Ahai. It's not that these guys literally existed. It's not that they're going to show up in another form to interfere with the story. It's more, I think you can get clues to how our characters are going to interact and the situations they're putting themselves in by using these archetypes. Like Azor Ahai, you know, there are very good people in the story who live up to Azor Ahai imagery like Jon Snow or Davos Seaworth. There are very horrendous people in the story like Euron and Victarion who live up to Azor Ahai. And there are people in the middle like Stannis or Daenerys who live up to the Azor Ahai image. And I think the point of that is the archetypes don't give you moral grounding. They just give you story structure. And that it, trying to live up to that archetype doesn't help you be a good person. It doesn't actually help you determine what to do. And just like Aaron is really hearing his own voice when he talks to God, Stannis and all the rest of these Azor Ahai figures are really just themselves at the end of the day. And they're just, what they bring to the table ends up defining what Azor Ahai means. Azor Ahai is thousands of years dead if he ever existed. He's not in charge of what Azor Ahai means anymore. These guys are. To you, do you think this is like a true mad grab for power in a sense? Like Euron saw the comet, and do you think that he got the like that was his first idea, or do you think that this is something like the sort of prophetic lore of the world that he lives in is something that he actually buys into? Like, do you think he saw the comet and then was like, ah, oh, this marks the time for the charnel pits and graves to, you know? started bubbling and amassing and a new king will rise from the depths of hell. Like, is, is that what he was inspired by? Is it like the momentum of his whole thing? Just, it keeps going. He realizes that there's a time, uh, the, sorry, that no time is better than now to take the iron throne, which is seemingly the most organized seat of power in the known world. Or do you think that, um, he has like a greater plot that maybe stemmed from those times when he was young, when he was getting mentally probed by the three eyed Raven. That's a great question, whether Euron really believes in a prophetic structure pointing to him or whether he doesn't care and is just taking control anyway. And maybe the two have kind of evolved into each other over the years. It's easy for cynical and earnest motives to kind of feed into each other and become yeah. the same thing. You can't always separate them. From what he says, it seems like the hearing about the birth of the dragons was his, like, big deal. Was his him going like, oh, the, the tools I need to do what I want are now presenting themselves. And, of course, the comet you know, came into sight at the same time as the dragon birth, right before the dragon birth. So they're probably linked in his mind. But I do think a lot of it, I do think, you know, every supervillain needs an origin story, right, that explains why they're doing what they're doing. And I do think mm -hmm. the three-eyed crow business is that for Euron. Because what Bloodraven showed Bran 
wasn't just like, you know, a vague threat is coming for you. He showed it to him. He showed him the heart of winter. He went north, farther than north, rather than we've actually been physically in the stories and showed him the other, showed him the core of the heart of winter, whatever it is. And Bran like screamed and cried because it was terrifying. I get the sense that Euron loved it. I get the sense that Euron fell in love with it and wanted to be it. And that's kind of the image he he is he is trying to recreate and keeps coming back to. And that's, that's why he's so into Valyria's doom, because it's kind of the same thing, this horrible elemental wasteland. And I think that's I think that's really what he loves. And I think he loves things that are like that, that remind him of that. Disorder. So he's like confidently headed straight toward disorder and chaos. Well, because you think about um, the like the creaking door imagery that we keep getting mm. from Aaron and what Euron was like as a kid. And I mean, raping his brothers mm-hmm. and being horrible to them. I think that like that sense of almost entitlement or I don't know what you just how you describe his mindset with how he handles his brothers um but I think that combined with what other whatever other stuff is going on and these other things that he's being shown just kind of feeds into it's like the perfect storm for him to then turn into who he is today if he's already feeling that sense of um like I said, entitlement. Plus um, momentum. Yeah. Plus a, a motive or like a spark or some sort of your special that he already felt about himself. It's like feeding the flame to then be enough of a motivation to become who he is today. I agree. It's that he's, he's pure, he's pure power without any responsibility. And he seems to have pretty much always been like that. And yeah, it is, it's entitlement on just a massive cosmic apocalyptic scale. He he feels entitled to everything. Like being inside someone's brain is not something even Ramsey ever dreamed was possible, I would bet. To literally be inside yeah, no, someone's crazy. thoughts. It's it's the ultimate that's- control you can have over another person. Is the other person even an independent person anymore? Like look at Euron's crew. They're all mutes and you get the sense that he's just reduced their ability to be independent human beings from him. So it's so he can't warg not not properly, but maybe with the 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 target reduced, like their faculties reduced in a specific I'm, manner that he's he might to be able to skin access. change if Blood Raven was interested in him. He must be because Blood Raven says you have to be a skin changer to be right, a green. Exactly. Suit. Now again, we don't know. I think there are strong signs that Euron was at least contacted by Blood Raven. Who knows how far it got? Who knows if Euron failed or if Blood Raven looked at him and went, um, you know what? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> He saw all the potential possibilities. Maybe like, you're nah. getting far too into this kid. <laughs> Only room which, for one Dark Lord. Which is a well, that's the thing. That's a classic thing in fantasy, right? Is that the villain turns out to be a dark version of the hero. Turns out to have gone through the same path as the hero. Turns out to be very similar, except that several key decisions got made along the way, and now they're completely different. That's Darth Vader vis-a-vis Luke. That is Voldemort vis-a-vis Harry, and that is Euron vis-a-vis Bran. I think that is the structure that George is going for. Something that I think is really cool is um the semi attempt to i guess not humanize him necessarily but when we hear falia talk about euron at the beginning of the chapter mm. and how he's such a nice guy and how he buys her anything that he that she wants and how he's going to introduce her to all these different people and kind of there's almost a moment and i think we already as readers and of course Aaron also understands exactly what's going on but it's almost like an attempt to humanize him a little bit 
with um, this woman that he's been with. And then obviously we get to the end of the chapter and she too is tied to the bow of the ship. But I think it's kind of cool to see him in the light through this sweet, poor <laughs> woman. Poor Falia. Yeah, when we we see this monster as he is and we get this like little glimpse of he gives me gifts and silks and furs and blah, blah, blah. I think it's interesting. That's what makes him really scary. He's a monster who's yeah. very good at pretending he's not a monster, which is not something that Ramsey is good at or Littlefinger or Gregor right. Clegane. But Euron is very, very good at it. He's got the smiling eyes, as everyone says about him, as well as the crow's eye. The way she talks about him is just normal. Like, he's just a normal guy that she's into. Yeah, but she's completely out of her mind, though. She's like, isn't it totally great how he made all of my sisters serve the hall naked? That's a normal response. And then response. got raped on the dinner table. Yeah, she, yeah. It's, a dark, it's a dark version of Cinderella. She got her revenge on her stepsisters, but not just by marrying a nice man. She married, yeah. she married a nice man who pulled off the mask and turned out to have squid tentacles underneath. And, and, rags and, and rocks. And he just wiped out the family. Again, yeah, the literal mention of rags, just to get Cinderella in your brain. I think that's the structure George is going for there. And again, it's important to have this focus on Euron's victims to give the story shape. And so it's not just a, a series of horrible things happening. Falia has this, this arc, this disillusionment over the course of this chapter. And I think it gives a humanizing moment to Aaron, the most humanizing moment he gets, because... Although Aaron is very uh, pitiful as a victim of Euron, he's not a very nice or likable person on his own in terms of how he like reacts to and relates to other people. He's generally kind of an asshole. But he gets this, this great humanizing moment regarding Falia when she's telling him all the, the wonderful things Euron has done for him. He just, he just looks at her and he goes, woman, <laughs> run. He will hurt you. He will kill you. And he, he doesn't have to say that. And then no. she laughs. And then she laughs. And it's, again, like uh, I think Zach is right. In part, she's just... In part, I think something has to be off with her on her own that she's not looking at Aaron in his state and there's no alarm bells going off. I think something is clearly wrong there, but it's you still feel so bad for her at the end of this chapter because that's what Euron does to everyone. He lures you in oh, yeah. and makes you think that you are the finest being ever and you are just his and you're going to go with him all the way over the horizon, banners in the wind, and then you turn around and his his eye is not smiling anymore. And he and he ha- and you lost your tongue and you lost your tongue and you'll never speak again. And that's how he, he gets you in his trap. And yeah, that that ability to pass, so to speak, is really what makes Euron so effective, because if he was just a, a gibbering drug addicted sorcerer talking about the end times, he wouldn't be in charge. He would be a guy on a street in King's Landing. Remember those guys we see in the streets of King's Landing in like the second book? <laughs> yeah. They're just like, fire, the scourge is coming. <laughs> Euron could be one of those guys, but he's not because he's very charismatic and he's a very good politician. Which is, again, what makes him very different from someone like Ramsey or Joffrey, who are terrible politicians. Yeah, Joffrey sucks. Joffrey, Joffrey can't make people <laughs> like him, which is that was the big flaw in Tywin's grand thousand-year plan, is his chosen heir just alienates everyone. And Euron's not like that. Euron knows how to get people to like him, which is, you know, uh, that's the most successful sociopaths and psychopaths in history. Always know how to get people to like them. You know, Char- Charles Manson looks crazy to us, but he didn't look crazy to the people following him. And that's how you get your on. <laughs> I just don't understand how, I mean, obviously that comes from a place of speaking from particularly my own perspective, which is not a very broad way to think about things. But personally, I just don't get how you could be around someone like Euron and see like his wine stain. Like anyone who's got like a wine stained mouth in general around me, I'm just like, this guy's Blue one lips. of those guys. Blue lips you know what I'm are saying? a problem. Well, right. But we have guys who have real red lips in real life and they kind of remind me of that sort of Euron attitude. And we have, you know, 
there's there's ways of dealing with people like that. You just kind of like listen and nod your head and you slowly know, back when away. It, wh- right when it's over, it's over. But you can't do that with this guy because he's got a whole bunch of brutes that follow him that he's been able to interface with and promise a whole bunch of stuff to as well. And I find it to be really interesting that he is able to sort of delete history so easily by giving people gifts and by having a magical dragon horn that he pulls out in front of everyone. It makes everyone forget about the fact that he basically just evacuated the premises for the longest time whenever Balin was put back in charge after the uh the Robert's Rebellion. You know what I mean? Like yeah. where where have where have you been? If you're so awesome and you've got all this figured out. Okay, you're across the world, you're in old Valyria. Maybe he was in Old Valyria, and that's where he took his heroic dose of Shade of the Evening. Like he's like, this is the perfect place to do it, and I'll learn all the secrets of the universe. But even then, with all of his charismatics, I'm just like, it's so obvious that this guy is just the shit stain from far away. You know what I mean? Sure. But he has power. Yeah. I don't know. He's a powerful guy. I think that despite everything, he obviously has momentum, and he obviously has power and he's so he's promising to hurt their enemies and like you know what, yeah. what, what's that classic tweet i never thought the leopards would eat my faces sobs the woman who voted for the leopards eating people's faces party <laughs> like, yeah you're on yeah. promising to hurt said the by ted danson exactly you're on this promising to hurt the people who make them feel bad who make the ironborn feel lesser because when Euron comes in in a feast for crows it's at this very particular moment where Balin Greyjoy just died after his two pointless rebellions, constantly telling everyone the old way will make us great again and constantly getting evidence that it's not happening. And Euron comes in at this moment and says, yes, it can. It can be all true. All you have to do is go too far. All you have to do is be more like me, and then you don't have to settle. I've been everywhere. And so that's how he managed it. Because you're completely right, Zach, that he's got his political deficiencies out the wazoo. His reputation is horrible, and he's been away for so long, but he manages to spin that as, no, I've been your ambassador. I've been your emissary, trotting around the globe, bringing the old way to everyone. When in truth, like, the old way was training wheels for him, and he's so far beyond the Ironborn by now, but he has to... He has to play one on TV. There it is. There it is. And I'm confused because once once he gets outside of these guys, the ones who grew up in the same environment that he did, the ones that he know he knows inside and out. His high school friends, yep. And that have all of this power because they fight they fight like badasses. They fight with hatchets that I just imagine them fighting with strange swords, with weird cutlasses that aren't made well. I mean, half of them are mute in the first place. So imagine the kind of people that he surrounded himself with. These are the guys that he's got supporting him. I don't think that they're going to translate that well politically outside of their initiative in Westeros. Like, I know that we've got the vision of him with the squid face and with potentially Daenerys or someone like her standing beside him at the end of the chapter and like the second part of Aaron's trip. Mm -hmm. But how does he sell himself to anyone? Okay. So maybe the idea is he doesn't have to sell himself, but like Aaron notes in this chapter, he's running essentially because he can't truly face down the real militarized force of the men of Westeros. He can't do it. He can't do it. Exactly. No, I think you're totally right. None of them can. The Ironborn can't. So the only way is to cheat. The only way is to use blood magic. The only way is to do what the Valyrians did. The Valyrians started as sheep herders in the air pockets of older empires. And then someone, you know, someone crossed the line. Someone, you know, gave sheep to the first dragon and wrote it. And then we get the Valyrian Empire that that developed. And I think Euron is aiming for a similar goal. But I think he, 
I think you're right. He ultimately is reaching the point where he's going to stop trying to appeal to people. I think that, as I said, I think that's what we're seeing in The Forsaken, that this is the last scrap of the smiling eye. This is the right. last shadow play for Euron where he's pretending to appeal. And after this, I think the Dark Lord is out and he's not trying to win anyone's votes anymore. He's just trying to conquer people. It's also just less mysterious seeing him standing in his armor and, and surveying. I was thinking about the the nightmare and all the potential what ifs that my brain was spitting out as I was reading the literal text from George. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and add that on top of all the years that I've worked through and had those mysteries anyway. And then I get to the part in the chapter where he's literally standing in his armor. It's not a projection. It's literally happening. Yes. And then the world, it was like when we were in that, the museum and the, the guy was painting the thing and the people were taking pictures of the guy and yep. we were watching people taking pictures of the guy exactly. painting the thing that was painted by someone. Seeing Euron standing out there and, and, and Aaron just sort of accepting and realizing how much of it was real and it just i think there was like a synchronicity and he became really human to me it's like i saw the all the mystery of what euron was doing and it's like oh but he's just that guy he's just that guy doing that and if what you're saying is real or is if, if he has the possibility to do that or if he believes in that kind of stuff then i think it will be awesome because then there will be a real way for him to pull himself out of that hole but otherwise he's just doing what vic is doing basically i completely agree the the arc like euron doesn't have an arc obviously he doesn't change the we have the arc it's the, the arc of our understanding of euron that's what changes right. the gradual shedding of mystery and the the reveal of of he and himself but yeah, I agree. He's going to he's going to come up hard against a wall. And I think you nailed it that Victorian in his chapter and in, in released Winds of Winter chapter is just like this kind of buffoonish imitation of Euron. Like he's trying to be Euron with all the sorcery like and the overcompensating. Right. He's just trying to live he's up to that He's got Euron's image. old tool, dude. You know what I'm saying? Like his hand me down. Like here, take this. This thing that I don't use anymore. Exactly. It's your, now your prized possession. It's the same way both Stannis and Renly were trying, and there are very different ways to live up to the image of Robert, but never fully able to do it. I think that's what we're seeing with Victorian and Euron. But yeah, Euron, I mean, Euron is, uh, yeah, it's the question I think you were putting, like, when's it going to catch up to him? Like, you have all these forces going after him and all these problems he's created, and when, when does it catch up? And I think eventually if he tries to actually get in league with the white walkers which i think is his ultimate goal i think if he gets that far then he's completely done because they're not looking for friends they're not looking for human allies they're looking for puppets and they're more powerful even than he is but i do think i do think that's where it's headed all this free-floating imagery in this chapter i think it's pointing towards apocalypse and endgame that Euron is a character exists to bring that to the forefront you know sam is in old town right now and has this mysterious horn he's been carrying around for quite some time since it got found on the Fist of the First Men. And George made sure to, that we know that Sam held on to that little horn, even as he sold everything else away just to get to Old Town. And then in the north at the same time, John is reuniting with Tormund, and Tormund tells him, yeah, that the big horn that Mant said was the horn of winter that could bring down the wall, it wasn't actually the horn of winter. We were just lying to scare you guys, to bamboozle you. And John thinks to himself, okay, well then, where is the true horn? And I think all that sets up, Sam accidentally, unknowingly, has the true horn, the horn of winter that can bring down the wall, and has brought it right into Euron's path. So my guess is that's where Euron's story is heading. He gets his hands on the horn of winter. He has this connection or love for the others that he saw when he glimpsed as a child when Bloodraven opened his third eye. He blows the horn and brings down the wall. That's my guess as to how the wall comes down in the books. 
And then he gets killed by Jamie uh-huh. Lannister. Exactly. <laughs> and then he gets killed on the shores of King's Landing yeah. by Jamie Lannister. I mean, I think Wild. of all characters who showed up in show and books, I think you can most divorce Euron. I think as, as book and show characters, I think they are perhaps the most separate. Whatever you think of, oh. whatever you think of show Euron, that guy has nothing yeah. in common with book Euron. He's, 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 yeah, he's a lesser <laughs> version of Jamie, really, more than he has anything to do with book Euron. Dude. Just take him down, man. Take him down. Finger in the bum. Come on, man. Yeah, that's a. Uh, that that's that, that, that made my heart saying win. that. This guy would take his cloak of tongues and wipe it across your bum. Exactly. He would stick imagine his cloak of tongues in your bum. Armor. Uh, Which you can't do. Me. And I understand why you're on as he exists in this chapter was never going to be on HBO's Game of Thrones. Just in terms of, of the tone and the look. It, it's just, it's it's a completely different story all of a sudden. And that's the exhilaration of it. That's what makes it great for me. But for a mass audience on a television show, suddenly the story is about this weird wizard who has, has no connection to most of the main characters. Yeah, that was not going to fly. No, of course not. It just, I like what you say, though. I mean, it, the tone of it and just like the shifting towards where this story can and will go and kind of the gravity of it, I feel like the the magic of it is ramping up. I mean, I mean, we were talking about how he's just standing there with this Valyrian armor and he's just wearing it, standing there like this guy. Just casually. It, yeah, it's like this combination of the mystery of it all ramping up and starting to come to a head and it also just becoming a reality instead of yeah. this thing yes. that's happening in the background. I think you nailed it. And Yeah, and I think that that's such an exciting corner that we're turning around to the winds of winter is it's not just whispers but here's the reality of it and that's gonna change the tone of everything as the whole situation just is accelerating it's a it's the david lynch thing of the border between dreams and reality that slippery border and euron wants to bring the apocalypse out of his dreams and aaron's dreams and into the real world and it kind of seems like he might succeed like that's yeah i feel like this whole chapter is designed to get you ready for end times to to let you know what the long night feels like. The very first line of this chapter, it was always midnight in the belly of the beast. Like right there, that's what the long night looks like. And that's what Euron is getting you ready for. So psychic powers in the series, who do you think has them based Mm -hmm. off? Okay. We're at the end of this conversation, or at least at the end of that part of the conversation. Who do you think has them? Who do you think knows about them? And I guess the better question is, do you think that there are any organized seats of power that are aware, know how practical it is, and are maybe channeling it? And if they are, do you think that they're using some kind of a... Glass candle? I was going to... I'm trying to think of like the way to put technology into words, because I, th- I also think of how Bran is able to access the old gods, air quotes is a, a form of technology, but it's also who he is, right? Right. Like it's, his, it's his blood, essentially, and we know blood is important, but outside of that, I'm wondering if there's any kind of actual practical technology. Like, are glass candles something that was made by people that are of any time period that we're able to hear about on this planet, or is it from a truly ancient time that might actually be a futuristic time for another civilization, whether they're from this planet or from a different one. I think George is interested in like the, the Prometheus 
story, stealing fire from the gods and what you what happens when you try to step that far. And a lot of the magical technology we see in the series is about that, about trying to access and make use of these higher powers. And the glass candles, I think, are part of that. That's how they're set up. Maester Lewin says they're a cautionary tale for young maesters these days who think they want to learn magic. You got to learn that you can't. But now the glass candles are burning again. Now that magic is very real. And, you know, yeah, the, the high towers. Uh, up at the top of their tower, uh, they're they're getting up to some sort of magical shenanigans. Uh, Leighton and Melora High Tower, so they might have tapped into all this stuff that's going on. Uh, Sam might meet them and have that explained to him. But I think that I think there's a couple people. Marwin the Mage is another one who seems to kind of have an understanding of what's going down, metaphysically speaking. Mm-hmm. Do you think that their literal height, in that sense, not only their height, but maybe their topology or topography uh, allows them to access like a, a stronger current of energy and if so is that being caused by heavenly bodies well again it's the literal versus metaphorical thing like metaphorically tall towers often speak to like climbing to the gods ascending to higher powers and even euron talks that way how you know how will i ever test my powers unless i leap from some tall tower is how he puts it or Bran being thrown from the tall tower, and that's how he has the, the dream in which he acquires his powers. So I don't know if it's literally helping the high towers acquire magic, but I think the fact that they are there speaks to their part in that part of the story. And I think it's uh, Pate in the Feast for Crows prologue says that you could see all the way to the wall from the top of the high tower, which is not literally true, but oh. but maybe it means that they have a glass candle or are involved in some sort of magical sight involving that part of the story somehow. Glass candle, could that just be like an iPhone 6? It's 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 communications <laughs> only technology. Six. Only a six, right? They gotta update. You gotta get your update your glass candles, folks. Get the new one. It, no, it would have to be one of the iPhones that doesn't have a button because it's so hard for them to turn it on. They're like, I don't understand. <laughs> I have to spend hours alone with this thing and it keep hurting my hands. Maybe it's like a cracked iPhone. That's exactly. what it is. I mean, what what <laughs> it really is, if we're being honest, is a palantir. It's the seeing stones from Lord of the Rings. Right. That's what the glass candles are. And that they're, they're at the top of the high tower, maybe, and that's Orthanc, Saruman's tower. And there's, you know, George always loves his Tolkien pastiche. It's, it's literally a palantir, though? Like a spherical glass object? I don't think... I think the I think the glass candle is is uh, as it's described like a long like jagged uh, cylinder of obsidian basically, but I think it's you know it's 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 the same idea. And of course, Tolkien didn't invent that either. This the, the concept of this this uh, this technologically this stone by which you can cross time and look right. into each other's souls and dreams. That's an old idea that I think uh, both Tolkien and Martin are drawing from. But but Tolkien did describe the way it came into the world. Not to mention how the whole world came into being. I'm not saying that George is going to copy the same. True, that's not. That's more Tolkien's thing than George's. Yeah, you're. Let's say that he does, though. Let's say that he wants to bring that level of attention to detail to his story. Let's say that that this is an artifact. Is it an artifact from another story? Like, is this in universe with other stories, or is this an artifact from you know just different people that lived here and they figured it out before the Valyrians? And it's a Palantir made by other people that lived here. And do you think we'll get to know anything about it? I mean, there was those layers of history in Old Town that before the Valyrians, there were the, the deep ones and the maze makers there. So Euron is kind of trawling up those layers of history. So I think, again, I think it exists as context. Like when you when we learn that there was a pirate lord who lived on Battle Isle in Old Town, I think that's, you know, that's just an incarnation of Euron. That's our early example of Euron. That's the setup for Euron. And I think, I think that's... If I had to guess, I would think that's like how how George sees the story almost visually, like these series of structures, these sedimentary layers that are like building down on the current day characters that are acting out patterns from these older characters. And I think 
I think it's interesting to ask the question, as you asked, Zach, which characters are aware of this? Remember, Tyrion talks about, you know, puppets being on strings, dancing on those who came before them. So which puppets can see the strings? And I think Euron is one of them. And the people that, I don't know, are in charge of things, I would, I would look to them and I'm, I would be curious. The, the groups that have the most sort of unquestioned power, I don't know about the the truth of what is happening in the shy and the Shadowlands. I don't know about the truth of what's happening deeply behind the house of black and white, but you know, they, they, uh, they believe in a lot of crazy stuff and they do a lot of crazy stuff. And so I'm curious as to anyone that can do anything that is weird outside of the, uh, well, the roller stuff. I agree. And it's interesting is a lot of them are kind of passive. Like the undying don't do anything. They just sit there. The faceless men don't really do as much as they could with their powers at this point. Euron, right, but Euron the, is one of the, the few undying, who's very active. He's one of the 13. You know, Pyre Priva is one of the 13. They have they have power. Karth is one of the greatest cities in the world. It's the greatest city in the world. True, but what do they do with it? They're mostly just sitting on their asses, like the, the, the Hall of the Thousand Thrones that Danny goes to when they're all sitting in their glorious chairs. But she says they're just bored. They're just listless. That's what everyone does, unless they're like Euron. Everyone is basically just sitting on their asses. Because power is actually kind of boring. Once you have everything you want, your life stops meaning anything. And Euron, I think, is just the ultimate example of a person who just becomes the power drive. Like, everyone else has a power drive for a reason. Euron is just when it's it's just power. It's the, when, it, when it's just the grasping hand for more and more, and there's nothing else behind it. Like in, in The Forsaken, when Euron spits the shade of the evening at him. And you're on mm. like licks it off. It's yeah. so vile. But that's like I think that's the grounding for Euron. He's an addict. He's hooked on power. He just wants more and more and more. And there really is no end game. He's just never gonna stop. Well, I mean, do you think that he has the potential to do as much damage as because it seems like he's basically an upjumped version of what these other cloistered powerful people are, like these people that have grouped off into uh like houses literally sure. we're, we're talking about two different houses in this case that both do psychedelic stuff and both are mysterious about their means it's like he's doing that but on his own and there's like a miniature version of his mystery with Aaron. and i'm curious as to like what power he's trying to get from it other than just influencing and potentially using Aaron to scry in some way to see some kind of potential future or is there some deeper reason that he's uh probably Tied to what Bloodraven is doing with Bran, honestly. I'm sure, but it's also maybe think about, like, what else? Like, what else has he got? What, is he going to be another Greyjoy? Is he going to be another pirate who just bum-rushes fishing villages his whole life and then goes back home to mm-hmm. die on his grim, damp, horrible islands? Maybe what the reason he's really doing all this is because he just doesn't want to do that. He wants more than that, and that it's just the... The, the worst version of that kind of ambition we see with characters like Littlefinger. Littlefinger does that magic. What do you think about all this stuff, Hannah? Like, same questions for you. Uh, my favorite thing about having Emmett on as a guest is that I don't have to answer questions. I just get to ask <laughs> oh, somebody shucks. else. I've been, ta- I've been taking up too much <laughs> I love space, to hear though. what Emmett has to you say. I just, no, I love to listen to you. Um. <laughs> okay, so apparently there's news. Sorry, oh, Hannah, yeah. finish your thing. I was just going to say that as I've been thinking about this, I know that we haven't really talked much about the Victorian chapter because, frankly, it's kind of boring. But, I mean, not boring, but I feel like in comparison to what's going on with Euron, um, there's less going on because, like we were saying earlier, he's kind of picking up his scraps. But I'm just curious as how he plays into everything that Euron's trying to do. And as we think about 
whether what Euron's endgame is or isn't, how Victorion's little jaunt to go get Daenerys is going to play into any of that at all. And that's just, I don't know the answer to that question. I feel like that's not as interesting as what you're about to <laughs> read us in your text message. So, <laughs> No, that is, that actually, that is super interesting. But it uh, uh, sounds like uh, Zach is bursting at the seams with something. What you got, buddy? HBO gives Game of Thrones Targaryen prequel series a full order. A full order. Oh. HBO announced Tuesday this game is a war officially received. So the title House of the Dragon, 10 episodes have been ordered. Okay. Whoa. And That's wild. Ma- Miguel Sapochnik right. will serve as co showrunner and direct the pilot. Interesting. He's the director of Battle of the Bastards, Hard Home, and The Long Night. And obviously, we just were talking about how it seems like all the curtains were closing based on some anecdotes from a couple of different journalists that on all the prequels, just at the top of this episode, but now there's a poster. It's yeah. house of the dragon. Yep, I'm looking I'll at send it. you wow. guys the poster right now. House I'm of the dragon. Yep. Wow. Fire will rain. And it says based on fire and blood by George R. R. Martin. So there, there we go. And Miguel will be there. That is so cool. That's wild news that Miguel spots. Hell yeah. yeah. That's really good news. I like that. Hell Yeah. Well, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about, like, an hour ago, like, RIP to all of the people. <laughs> right? Things just keep evolving. Wow. So, what do you guys feel about that, based on uh, his last episode? He's a phenomenally talented director, so, so all good. for the good. I love him. Um, I don't know. I feel like I need a second to process this. I wish, I mean, okay, we don't have a release date, obviously, but we have a poster that feels... <laughs> so huge. I'm so interested in the tone of this more than any specifics plot wise I'm just interested because so much of what made Game of Thrones a crossover was the exact tone it struck and I think you know it ended up in a, a place I wasn't particularly fond of in terms of the humor but overall I think the, how it carried itself was so critical to its success and I'm so interested in how you how you tell fire and blood stories to a large audience because I love fire and blood but a lot of that stuff is niche so I'm I'm very interested it's got to be so epic in scale and so well orchestrated and so well executed that all the stuff I said before about it being boring that we already know what happens doesn't matter. That it's just really pleasing to look at. Agreed. And they got to pick a, a couple of characters. to. I mean, who knows? Who knows what the format of this could be an anthology series for all we know. But you got to pick a couple that of characters be. to build it around. God, the vibe is so interesting. House of the Dragon. Fire, fire, fire will rain. That is crazy. That both gives me pause and makes me excited because that sounds schlocky. That sounds like we're, we're getting a 300 sequel of a show here, and I would be fine with <laughs> well, that. Well, here's the thing, though, is we're talking about one-upping ourselves and how Game of Thrones— You look at the—what was that— um, what did they call it? But that episode at the end of the series when they talked about production and how they were essentially one-upping themselves every season. Sure. To me, you look at House of the Dragon or this idea of dragons or the Targaryens at all is just a that's a spectacle. <laughs> and I think that's a very easy spectacle. And they got the same guy that hated working on it. Remember how Miguel was like, just six weeks of hell. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what we're yeah. shooting. And they're Welcome like, hey, back, do you want to shoot 10 episodes of literal hell? Fire will rain. weeks of hell? Here you go. Oh, my God. We're we're living in a bad place, everybody. But, no, but just, maybe it's a really good place. Help, as you say, this is different from like The Hobbit as a prequel, the movies of The Hobbit, where they had to like pump up a small story and add a ton of action to make it feel as big as the Lord of the Rings, you don't have mm-hmm. to do that with Fire and Blood. That the, the the scale and the set pieces are there. 
I think That's I think the, the character element I think is what they're going to have to work on hard if they want this to be a, a big success. I don't know though if they even need to do that. Like okay, I fe- okay. I feel like I mean from our perspective, absolutely. But from for people like, just watching, they want more Game of Thrones. They're like, holy shit, look at this! But and- do they? Because the end of Game of Thrones was a gigantic fiery yeah, battle, and right. everyone hated I know. it. So, I'm with you. So it feels like I mean. Far be it for me to say the extremely pretentious thing of the people have no fucking clue what they want. Right. But <laughs> I do think you're going to have, I do still think you're going to have difficulty crossing over a show with fantasy trappings that doesn't have the character or the scene at the heart of it that gets everyone talking. You need the Ned Stark execution. You need Bran out the window. You need a hook. You need John staring down the Night King at the end of You Bart absolutely Home. do. And I, I, there are, there's definitely potential for that in Fire and Blood, but you have to work much harder than you do with A Song of Ice and Fire, where those moments come on every page. Yeah, but you have something to base it on. Like, you have something to compare it to. True. You are, I mean, it's Fire not as hard a, a road to hoe as Game of Thrones in the first place. That's true. Yeah, like Fire and Blood is a much vaguer... I mean, there's a lot there, but there's a lot there on a much more broad scale instead of these... Um, moments that we're expecting to hit that's true i don't know no that's a very good point it's going to be interesting i'm excited i thought that this was not going to happen and what a, what, what a wild episode we're in I'm, I'm, yeah this is really like <laughs> i've been Twists through a lot today, I know, right? what a day. <laughs> branding and stuff too i gotta say i like the uh the text treatment on house of the dragon more than i like the last season of game of thrones Hopefully, I like their Instagram account more than I like the last season of Game of Thrones Instagram account, right, Hannah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, you love to hate it. So uh, that's so Victorian uh, Greyjoy. Yeah, Victorian Doesn't Greyjoy. Doesn't that feel like a, a descent compared to, <laughs> compared to the compared to Fire and Blood? But I think Hannah makes a great point that this chapter feels just like almost deliberately less attention grabbing than something like The Forsaken because Victorian is a joke of a character. The, and the joke is on him throughout. The whole point of his character is that he never understands what's happening at any given time, even as he thinks he's completely mastering the situation in front of him. And you see that all as over. As he this, strokes his horn. As he strokes his horn. You see that all over this chapter where it's like the whole, you know, the, what we have of the chapter. The whole part of it is like someone else is going to blow the horn because the horn's really dangerous. Killed the last guy who did it. And yet still in this chapter, Victorian has this desire to blow the horn himself, even though he knows that will kill him <laughs> because it'll prove he's bigger and better than Euron. Because Euron didn't have the nerve to blow it himself. So I, gu- I guarantee that's what we're seeing coming for Victorian in terms of his death, that he's going to blow it himself. Oh, I would love that for him and for us. And it just like burns from within, especially if I'm right about Euron blowing the horn of winter, that would make it just a perfect parallel. Like the Greyjoy brothers blowing the horns of fire and ice. But it works. Oh my but it works for one. It works for the actual supervillain and doesn't for his pathetic shadow, Victorian, <laughs> who's just because Victorian. Victorian's also like uh, Quentin, his fellow like suitor who came east to get Daenerys Targaryen. In that they're both like secondary characters who are trying to be the protagonist and just failing miserably. So I think I think you see you see with Victorian the same sense of of complete doom that you see with Quentin. It's like you're not. You you are too small for this big world, little man. I do hope that we see him with Daenerys, though, just because I feel like uh, I would love to see him roll up into that situation. Incredible. I would his, love that conversation. I think, yeah, I think that she would just, I mean, I would hope that she would eat him alive. I think but, she probably would. Um, <laughs> I think it'd be very. Maybe literally. She would, but at first, it'd be cool at first when he was like, I'd love to see how he resolves it. That's one of the the 
so much fun for me reading Vic is that while he's sort of out of his mind, he doesn't really know it. And so it's interesting to see like what he's going to do next. It's it, you, it perfectly put the nail in the head when you said that he thought about like he had that gut reaction to potentially put the, the like to blow the horn right as he's showing the horn to the guys that are going to blow the horn. That's kind of his overall vibe and just having that wild card so close to Daenerys I think is almost as interesting as someone like Tyrion talking to her it's like what is Victorian Greyjoy on the field of victory seemingly having come in to help save them he's gotten more ships to his cause because the his plan that he that he talked about at the beginning of this chapter yep, yep. Uh, is followed through you know like I, I want to see Vic after he's done everything right his hand's been healed the monkeys are actually shitting from far away you know what I mean like everything is in harmony for him and I want to see what, what that guy says to Daenerys whenever she returns in whatever epic fashion to all of this. It's going to be wild to see his arm in battle, that firearm of his. I want I want to see him like grab a slaver by the neck and like the eyes pop and run down the <laughs> Like, you know, we're going to get something, something wild like that. I hope so, dude. I hope you're right. I hope that it's not like practical. I hope that it goes a little bit over the top while we're there. At the very least, I want to see him and Barristan like back to back fighting with exactly. each other. I mean, like, <laughs> I don't even like or respect you, but I I respect you in battle. He's like, yeah, I respect you too. Vic like, has that very cor- exactly. The, the, Vic has that very corny, awesome vibe, you know, where he in the Feast for Crows and when he gets into the ship battle, come, come, kill me if you can. Which I get a lot of people don't like. Oh that. God, so good, because so some good. Some people like a song Wait, of ice. Who and, doesn't like that? A lot of people like a song of ice and fire for the more self serious parts, and I understand why. But I love that stuff. And Victorian's perfect for that because he's he's a he's a genuine badass, but he's also so dumb. Like the wound, but he's not. The yeah. the wound the wound he takes is just because he grabs a sword in his mailed fist just cause just to yeah. be awesome, and that's what almost and he kills him. Was gonna die from it, you idiot! Why would you do that? And, and that's why he works as a character because, like, oh, this is why Euron's in charge. This is why Euron can be in charge, even though he's an obvious supervillain, because all his people are like this. This is how they think. No wonder Euron was able to take over. And that's the joke of Victorian thinking to himself, yes, I pulled one over on Euron. Let me tell you all about my plans, dusky woman who Euron gave to me. That's That wasn't suspicious <laughs> at all, by the way, that Euron just gave me this woman to take along. She in no way is his spy. I'm just going to tell her all my plans. He needs to stop dealing with Euron's old stuff, honestly. That's all he the, knows. The hand-me-down uh, comment was, was perfect. That's exactly what it feels like for Victorian. And it's so much... It's so much like Stannis. He loves it. He strokes it. He's like, Euron doesn't even know what he gave me with this thing. With this thing, I'm going to be able to take over the world. That would be like if your big brother gave you his bike or something, and you're like, I'm literally going to go to the X Games next year. That is the vibe. Victorian hates Euron, but he also kind of wants to be Euron at some level. And so this is his, it's like, I have my own sorcerer now. I have my own ships. I have my own weird spell arm. I have, I have everything Euron has. But he, he he really, really, really does not. In the same way that Quentin is like like the first draft of Jon Snow for Danny, like this earnest, like normal-faced guy who's just trying to do right by everyone but gets swallowed up in this big game. Like Victorian is just like this this preview of Euron, but he thinks he's he's so much better. And that's that's really the fun of reading these reading these chapters, is is just is is laughing at him as a POV. As one of the gods of A Song of Ice and Fire, which we all are when we read the story, I appreciate watching him savor life so completely and really lean into moments like this as he stood at the prow of the Iron Victory, watching One Ear's merchant ships vanish one by one into the west, the focus of the first foes he'd ever slain. 
Sorry, that's not focus, that's faces. The faces of the first foes he'd ever slain came back to Viterian Greyjoy. He thought of his first ship, of his first woman. A restlessness was in him, a hunger for the dawn and the things this day would bring. Death or glory, I will drink my fill of both today. It, that's what it's all about. It's so great. It's both awesome and a parody at the same time. Which is why it's, it, it feels like, you know, something like out of a, a like Mad Max Fury Road. Where like all the vehicles and the enemies and stuff are are really kind, are really awesome, but also really ridiculous at the same time. And you're you're like, go, for what? What is this right, for? Why do you have a guy with a guitar flamethrower? Aren't you low on resources? Okay, that's, How much it's gas obvious is the why we need the guitar guy? flamethrower guy. Come on, exactly because it's awesome, but it's also ridiculous. And that's this. It's the same appeal with with the Greyjoys and and with Victorian chapters. Is on one level you're just like you know blasting immigrant song and headbanging along the entire time. <laughs> But but George doesn't just leave you with that. He leaves. He, there's always these these critiques, these moments when he pulls up back the camera and makes you see that Victorian's ridiculous. Like Mercuro has that great line when he first shows up with Victorian. He says, "I've seen you in my nightfires, Victorian Greyjoy. You come striding through stern and fierce, but you are blind to the the black ropes around your ankles and neck, the tentacles that make you dance." And that's Victorian. The tentacles being Euron's, of course. Mercuro has this horrible vision of Euron as this tall and twisted thing on a sea of blood chasing after them, like, you know, on the astral plane. And Victorian is, is, is just just walking through in the middle of it. If, like, the, the, the horror of being Aaron Greyjoy is being the only one who understands who Euron is, and the fun of Victorian as a character is that he has no clue. No clue who he's dealing with. He doesn't even know the names of his own guys. I know, and I love that he, like... That's the thing that's funny to me. I love that he kind of criticizes himself for that and then assures himself it's fine. Like, he could not be expected to know the names of every thrall who had ever pulled an oar. Like, no one even said anything, Victorian. No one was even criticizing you for this. You're just coming up with this. That whole thing is just, to me, summarizes so well just the kind of guy that he is. I completely agree. I love those little moments in Victorian when he almost has a conscience, almost for a second, and then he pulls back. The same thing happens when he, in that naval fight and feast, when there's that one, um... Uh, I think it's uh, Talbert Seri, I think is the dude's name. The guy he fights and throws over the side, and then later on he asks, yeah. do you find his body? And he thinks to himself, fighter. he was a good man, a strong man, almost ironborn. It's like just for a moment, Victorian has empathy, and then he strangles it. And that's, uh, again, it's very similar to Stannis, who is similar to Victorian in a lot of ways. You know, un- Why do I like it so much, man? middle brother Why? with the Navy who hooks up with a red priest. It's, they're the same guy, basically. I don't know why I love it so much. It's funny. It's really funny. I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea. Victorian chapters are very much, are very unpleasant and they are not ambitious in the same way as like something like the Forsaken, but they have a very specific mocking tone. That's not, it's it's kind of similar to Cersei's chapters in a way, actually, that kind of, you're just shaking your head the entire time going, what, what, yeah, that's true. what are you doing? What are you doing? Like the sort of macabre aspects of a feast for crows exactly. are sort of like how, how heavily piratey these uh, passages are with Vic and, and rightfully so and I think it's awesome that George R. R. Martin has written a story where he has so many points of view where he's able to go into so many different avenues within the story that we're able to have a house of the undying and we're able to have a ridiculously Greyjoy Victorian Greyjoy on the prow of his ship just looking yeah. proudly mm, smelling the salt exactly air. like you know I understand you know the the appeal of the the deep tortured psychology of a Jamie Lannister or a Sandor Clegane is what brings mm-hmm. people in and loves the story. And I get that. I, I, I share that. But I also love he thought of his first ship, of his first woman. A restlessness was in him, a hunger for the dawn. Like that yes. that, that that raw, ripe, you know, Conan the Barbarian language. You know, that, that stuff is stuck around for a reason. And it's, it's not always done particularly well. And I think I love the f- – you can tell George is having just such fun with, with writing Victorian as a character. Mm. And I, I love that. 
that deal that he offered <clears throat> the three men, mm. I don't think it was that bad of a deal. And I think that was another example of him getting close to that sort of likability. You're like, are you going to actually do something nice? And then he pulls away from it. I want to read this passage for everyone. The mute sounded the horn three times. You will sound it only once. Might be you'll die. Might be you won't. All men die. The Iron Fleet is sailing into battle. Many on this very ship will be dead before the sun goes down. Stabbed or slashed, gutted, drowned, burned alive. Only the gods know which of us will still be here come tomorrow. Sound the horn and live, and I'll make free men of you. Or one, or two, or all three. I'll give you wives, a bit of land, a ship to sell, thralls of your own. Men will know your names. And then that's when that one goes. But will you know my name? And he's like, yeah. Even I will know your name if you succeed in this task. And so the deal was born. Not not so unfair. And I think a good contingency plan for when the battle goes down, he knows it needs to be, or at least thinks it needs to be sounded three times. I mean, clearly he's thought this through. Yeah, it's interesting. He's being honest with them. Like he's telling them, yeah, you might die from this. I'm not pretending you won't, but we might all die. I might die. This is war. And I, I do, I don't like, it doesn't make me like Victorian, but it makes me respect him more than I respect someone like Euron, who was never honest to any of the people he's manipulating and dealing with. Victorian has that kind of soldier mentality of like, you gotta be straightforward. And, um, but on the other, on the other hand, they are slaves and they don't have a choice and they are probably yeah. gonna die right. horribly. So there's, you know, being better than Euron is a very low bar. But he's kind of saying we're all going into the same danger together. And that I do seems like that. Like, I do appreciate that. I feel like that's just, he likes that kind of stuff, though. Like we're saying, he's a soldier. And that's true. In, in right. the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about how he's jealous because he's not going to be the first to strike. And so to him, it's like, wow, what a great honor. Like, I mean, I think that it's kind of interesting that he's talking it up to these guys that are going to have to do it anyway. Like you're saying, they're slaves, so I don't know yeah. why he needs to sell them on it. He just loves it, I think. I think. He's he, like genuinely yeah. into this stuff, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. unlike a lot of characters who are in their head, he's kind of like in the moment. He's like amped living. up on it to the point where he's trying to amp, like sell it just because he wants to talk about it. Yeah, so how do you think right. the, the fight's right. going to go then, you know, once oh. this happens? Like, how do you think we know based off of uh, Barristan's second chapter that they're doing pretty good? And I think also Tyrion's. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the slavers are going down hard with all the like they got people on both sides and they got their own cell swords turning against them. So it feels like the, the interesting stuff happens after the battle. You know what I mean? When all these people have to get along, as we were saying, mm-hmm. like, what is oh, what is yeah, Barristan yeah, yeah. going to think of Victorian? Like, that's that's what I want <laughs> like, to get to. Like, are they going to be? Back to back in the fight, you know, let's say, let's say they move closer from the shore. Like, how much do you think the Greyjoys are going to be involved? Well, they were a complete wild card. No one saw them coming. So Barristan's going to be like, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for saving us. But why? What are you doing here? And as soon as he hears from Victorian, oh, I'm here to marry Daenerys (laughs) and steal her dragons and take her back to Westeros, Barristan's going to be like, no, no chance. He's like, but we have a dragon horn. Hold on. Guys, blow it. And they're like, I don't want to blow it. Like, and who's this Euron fellow you keep talking about? Victorian's like, nah, you don't got to worry about him. We're fine. We're fine. I mean, Just wait till next season. I mean, we're, we're going, you know, going off the show. She does end up with an Ironborn fleet and Ironborn allies, but it's not Victorian. It's Yara and Theon who are coming there. Just to ask her for help, not to try to steal one of her dragons or claim her as bride. So I don't, I, I can't imagine she's going to be as friendly towards that whole Ironborn crew as she was towards Yara and Theon in the show, you know? But do you think that, you know, if the horn works for whatever reason, if it actually is dragon binding, that would play an interesting 
put bring an interesting factor in like Daenerys having no choice or being compelled or something. Yeah, that, that's true. That hinges on if if it is what they say it is. That's true. And not just something. So wouldn't it be easier to take down as well with her not being here? And with Drogon not being here as well? Tough. I mean, we, there's so much we don't know about the dragons specifically still. And Dragonbinder itself is a complete wild card. It might do nothing. It might be a complete phony. But then again, Danny tells us in Dance that the first Valyrians bound their dragons with sorcerous horns before they had, you know, before they created right. genetic advantages through centuries of inbreeding, like you do. But so it's possible that Euron's trying to like recreate that, you know? He's trying to be the first dragon lord again and use Dragonbinder. I can't imagine. I can't imagine he sent Victorian off with his his shiniest toy without a plan as to how that to get it worked. back or how <laughs> right. to make it work. So what Euron might be, maybe Euron thinks he has claimed the Dragonbinder with blood or some such, and that when Victorian or whoever blows it, the dragon will come to him, will come to Westeros. That's kind of goofy to imagine, like a dragon just flying across half the planet and showing up. Yeah. But it would work in terms of compelling Danny to go after it. You know, it would give Danny like this th- uh, a through line with the Ironborn in terms of pursuing this dragon. Because while I don't think it's going to go exactly like the show, I do think her dragons have to go down in some respect, or she has to have a conflicted relationship with her dragons. And I do think the Greyjoys are connected to that in some way, but I've no one has any clue what's going to happen when Dragonbinder blows. If someone says they do, they're lying. It could be anything. <laughs> It's exciting. It would be different if Daenerys were here in Marine and she needed their help and they were able to save her and she was present and was like, oh my God, because you guys showed up, it changed everything. But she's not even here to be a part of the fight. So when she comes back, presumably she's going to have some kind of a force at her back or some kind of, at the very least, she's learned a lot about herself and she may be just returning with Drogon in some powerful way. We don't know. True. But um, um, at the, uh, either either way, I think that that like throws a huge wrench in the traditional, like uh, everybody, all the winning team people coming together and dividing the spoils. You know what I mean? Like it's there's such a, a, a unknown factor hanging in the air because of how she returns or whatever she ends up doing with everyone once they're done. Agreed. I think the most likely scenario is she ends up with his ships. And what's left of his men, but not Victorian himself, that he either dies before that or she kills him because he's just, I mean, ultimately it's hinging on his marriage proposal and Victorian is not Danny's type. Exactly. You know who Danny's type is? Euron. Euron is Danny's type. If you look at Drogo, mm. even more so if you look at Dario, Dario is, I mean, there's the ridiculous Dario is Euron theory, <laughs> but the reason that theory exists is because there are parallels between them. I love that theory. They're not the same person, but they are similar for a reason. I think part of why they're similar is because setting up that Danny might have a thing for someone like Euron, someone with those smiling blue eyes who loves violence and is very charismatic and flamboyant about it all. She likes that kind of guy. And that's not Victorian. I get it. I get it. I was in love with Euron for five seconds too. <laughs> he is canonically the hot Greyjoy. Like the first when, when he shows up, Victorian's first thought is he looks the same. He looks just as young. I look old now. <laughs> and, and yeah, Victorian. Victorian is more like Cersei's type. Like he's basically Robert Strong with a boat. That's that's more who Victorian would get along with. Daenerys is going to look at him and just I would pick my teeth with you, little man. I want to see it happen. Don't we all, buddy? Don't we all? For the moment, we have these fragments, tears in the rain, lost in time. We have uh, not a finished ending of this chapter, but an anecdotal ending to this chapter. It was written on the Forum of Ice and Fire by member Bulldog. 
in 2012. This was a report from MissCon in Missoula, Montana. I don't know if anyone has the uh, three lines, or sorry, not the three lines, but the three groupings of notes directly in front of them. Any, any, any uh, the fan summary? Have this? Yes, I do. Go for it. Sure. After after he shows the horn to the three deckhands, the dusky woman bleeds his wounded hand slash arm into a bowl. Then Matarian takes that blood and rubs it into the horn and murmurs to it softly, "My horn, dragons," as we were talking about. My precious. Exactly. Then he finger bangs the dusky woman. No sex. He says he doesn't like to bust a knot before battle. My phrasing. <laughs> my phrasing. Exactly. Is I, I love this, that. Phrasing. Which, yeah, that's, it, it fits Victorian's character. I thought it was Jeff at first because I saw it first that on the Winter Winter Ultimate too. Resource. And I was <laughs> literally laughed out loud. I was like, good The God. dusky woman helps him put his armor on. He gives a rousing speech to the crew and they sit sail towards Marine. So, again, it's the same ending as the Forsaken. He's standing there with his armor, with his fleet pointing off into the horizon. But Victorian's like a normal dude wearing normal armor who's genuinely invested in his crew who love him. And they're going into a normal-ish battle together. Whereas in The Forsaken, it's this this nightmarish character with his nightmarish sorceress armor with a crew he's going to betray and destroy as part of a blood sacrifice. So it's these these perfect contrasts, perfect similarities and, and yet opposites. And that's what I really like about the Greyjoys is... These these parallels and these dynamics between them, I think, make them more interesting than they are individually. And this is why our holiday or our, sorry, Halloween special was born. Exactly. <laughs> these are kind of perfect Halloween chapters. It's not good, man. I like how he just sort of angrily finger bangs the dusky woman before he leaves. I imagine it. I imagine it that way. He's just like sort of frustrated. Again, very like Stannis. This is probably Stannis with Melisandre, like before the Battle of Blackwater right here. Girl, can't, can't bust in it before battle. Got to keep my grimace on. Gotta gotta keep my brow furrowed before war. I guess maybe that'll help, but uh, do like the uh, the Vikings did and just take a bunch of mushrooms, or like his brother. Right, I love that moment when Euron tries to give Victorian shade of the evening, like with Aaron and Victorian spits it out. Because imagine what Victorian tripping would be like. He'd just be like sitting Dude. in his chair with his arms folded, going, "Don't like this. Nope, the face is glaring at me. Make it stop. Tell that peach to put clothes on." I figured it'd be a bunch of like violent free association, but you're probably right. He'd probably like crumble He'd within be very himself. Very upset. He, it would be would... like Jeff if Jeff ever took drugs, which would only happen if I said it to him. He Poor would, thing. He would just be very uncomfortable and not move very much. Uh, well, uh, what do you think, Hannah? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think do you we should think do our own. Which, uh, which Greyjoy brother is your favorite? Oh, wow. Is, what a question. There's no good answers, unfortunately. Yeah. It's all bad. Um, uh, I think Balin's I the only right answer. He just quickly got out of the way. No. I mean, I'm going to pick Theon just because I love his beautiful redemption arc. I guess he is a yeah he included in that list. Why not? The Theon's the great yeah. with an arc with a dramatic arc to himself. Yeah, why can't? Why is he not included in the list? I was just imagining all the the sons or whatever of uh, Kellen Greyjoy. Nine sons oh. are born from the loins of Quillan Greyjoy. Again, yeah. just that wonderfully <laughs> over know. the top pirate talk. I love it. <laughs> I pick your on, dude. If you don't talk He's about the, the Greyjoys with like overly indulgent pirate talk, you're doing it wrong. Oh yeah, you're you're missing every opportunity. That's the point, everybody. That's the point. Precisely. Before we get to Owens, what is the significance of the dwarves in these psychedelic visions dancing around everyone's feet while simultaneously 69ing with each other? This is the one thing I don't really like. This is something Peter Dinklage has talked about this before, how often in like psychedelic dream sequences – uh, people will throw in dwarves because it's a signifier of weird. And it's like, ooh, it's weird. It's got dwarves in it. Like, uh, you see the same thing in Twin Peaks 
where it's just like abstract dream sequences just have a little person thrown yep. in there because visually they don't look like a tall person. So I, I feel like George is leaning on, the, on that trope, and that's unfortunate. On the other hand, if you, you know, people who've taken DMT have reported that you do see dwarves often in your vision, so take that for whatever it's worth, take it with a grain of salt. I think it's kind of a lame trope, and George has a, a lot of other better signifiers he uses for spooky and psychedelic in this chapter. But in terms of, yeah, the, what are they, like, they're wrestling before him on the Iron Throne. So I guess they're just the people of Westeros, right? Fighting each other while he laughs. That would be my guess. Yeah. That's, I think, what we years ago equated some of that to from the House of the Undying. But right. I just thought it was curious yeah, that's a good how point. Uh, pointed it was and it being still like a modern chapter. Like if it was connected somehow with, that aspect, with Tyrion or that aspect something, of it I don't feels know. Like, like an artifact from George's older writings, though. I think, I yeah. think so. And he's honestly pretty good about shaking that off. And I think that it's something now that we're at the end of these sample chapters, Hannah, tell me if you feel the same way, but I really feel like uh, I was a little skeptical at first when I started to dive into these, like George had sort of drank some of his own Kool-Aid and I hadn't read enough of them. And I think I, I, I had read some of Mercy and I was just like, I don't get it why it's happening this way and I'm signing off. But now that we're, through all of these on the podcast and we've had a chance to break them down and discuss them this way. I've been impressed at how it seems like he's shaken off some of like his older chops and just continued to progress and get more close to the point, like reaching a level of sublime, I think in a, a quicker and more efficient way, like in the moment where he uh, licked the spit off of his hand and uh, the forsaken chapter when you're did that. I think that that was a, a very obvious and pointed moment, like translation from the ether of what Euron would have literally done in that mm. moment. And I think that that's a uh, an improvement. Not that George's writing like lacked before particularly, but um, I just think it's it reached a new level of tightening. And I've been really excited about the Winds of Winter because of that, because it seems like he's really got a, a purpose right now. And uh, I love how clear everything is. I do think it's interesting, though, that most of these chapters were written as part of dance. I think they all were. I think even, yeah. even the Forsaken was originally slated for a dance with dragons, which, wow, that would have changed things if that had come out eight years ago. Right. So I agree with you in the sense of his writing is much tighter. And I I mean, I think that everybody would agree with you in saying that he has become a much better writer through the process of all of this. But in terms of what it means for Winds of Winter, I feel like we don't know yet just because we haven't seen what he's written specifically for Winds of Winter um, we've only seen what he's since moved over from Dance of Dragons. Shout out to George's editor, Anne, as well, for, I'm sure, being an unspoken hero and a lot of that tightening of the vision. And it's really uh, uplifting. You're, you're making a point that it was like, these are basically relics from another time that we're talking about in 2019 now, as if they're feeling brand new. So I'm excited about, like you said, getting to the actual brand new-ish stuff and seeing what that's like. We can hope. We got a lot of hope now that the prequel's been confirmed, so things are really <laughs> looking up for all of us. Exactly. Out of the fire, back into the frying pan. Right. Out of the fire, into the dragon. Time to get hype. Owns for these two chapters. We can start with the Forsaken. Sure. Uh, my own in the Forsaken is damp hair spitting back in Euron's face and not giving in. Because that is like the kind of the emotional core of the chapter beyond all the great imagery, is that he, Euron wants to not just control Aaron, but break him internally, and he does not succeed. And I own own for damp hair for sticking up to the crow's eye. I love that scene so damn much. Mm-hmm. 
of that part of it. That's that just seems so real to me. It was like there's all this there's all this stuff shrouded in potential story weight and then there's just that very real thing that happens like oh i know what he was trying to impress upon his brother in that moment very clearly uh-huh. i'm gonna give my own to the vision in general uh-huh. of the shade of the evening and um i can't give to i guess i can also to the just the practical line of Aaron of was all of us in that moment when he was like he's wearing a suit of Valyrian steel armor. What the hell? He's like, yep. He's like, I've never even heard of anyone having something like that. And you were all of us in that moment. Yeah, and imagine hearing about that in person. Never gonna forget that moment. <laughs> I think that was like one of the first things you texted me about. You're like, he has a suit of Valyrian steel armor. That's all I said out loud for probably like three days after. Those are the only words that came out of my mouth. Right on. That's what I'm gonna give my own to as well. But I want to read it, the the paragraph because I don't think we read it yet. Euron Crow's eye stood upon the deck of silence, clad in a suit of black scale armor like nothing Aaron had ever ever seen before. Dark as smoke it was, but Euron wore it as easily as if it was the thinnest silk. The scales were edged with red gold and and gleamed and shimmered when they moved. Patterns could be seen within the metal, whirls and glyphs and arcane symbols folded into the steel. Valyrian steel, the damp hair knew. His armor is Valyrian steel. Hell yeah. It never gets old. It never gets old. <laughs> and for Victarian 1, keep in mind, everyone, this is Vic leveling up, becoming a man on his own right. This is his his chapter, his name chapter in the Winds of Winter. Got to give it to him, all right? Like, this is the book, the most awaited one so far. So, you know, give props to Victarian, everybody. It's pretty cool. I, uh, my, my <laughs> own for this one is going to go to, uh, the bastard's bastard, the one of the three slaves who has the nerve to ask Victorian, even you, even you will know our names. Good for him. That took, that took, a took some nerve to ask him that question. He gets an own. I'm giving my own to Victorian and his plan in Victorian one. All that was done and gone now, though, Victorian would have his do at last. I have the horn, and soon I will have the woman. A woman lovelier than the wife he made me kill. What a line that is, made me kill. (laughs) Yeah. It's so loaded. I know. There's so much misery and self-delusion packed into that sentence there. He left it for me to slay her. I had no choice in the matter. I'm just an automaton carrying out my actions. I'm going to give my own to... I'm going to read another paragraph. We kind of touched on it. Um, but I'm just going to give my own to Victorian being Victorian and read this chapter. I mean, paragraph, not the whole chapter. <laughs> Please read it. <laughs> A dragon's horn from Valeria, said Victorian. Ah, it's cursed. I never said it wasn't. He brushed his hands across one of the red gold bands of the ancient and the ancient glyph seemed to, seemed to sing beneath his fingertips. For half a heartbeat, he wanted nothing so much as to sound the horde himself. Euron was a fool to give me this. It was a precious thing and powerful. With this, I'll win the sea stone chair and then the iron throne. With this, I'll win the world. Dream big, buddy. I love I never said it wasn't cursed. It's so petulant and petty. Like, I never said it wasn't. Ah, I got so you. So good. Like, and he's infant. convincing them to blow on it. Right? <laughs> All right, everybody owns from you on Twitter. Can I do a uh, Chloe's and Jeff's? Yeah. I oh, think, yeah, dude. Zach, I think you should start and then Emmett can do Chloe's. This is from at Sir Benjen on Twitter, Ben Smith with a Y for the Victorian chapter. Owns McCorrow for playing Vic like a fiddle and making him believe the glory that awaits him is something other than death by dragon fire. 
Forsaken Own, to Euron for giving no Fs whatsoever and having a suit of Valyrian steel armor to boot. Damn straight. From Atlizen Arbor, a.k.a. Chloe from Girls Gone Canon, Owen to Folly of oh, Flowers, OTP. who stayed drinking dumb bitch juice. I love my daughter. So true. So well put. <laughs> At Stacy 27 Owen to Folly of Flowers, the poor girl had no idea who she was messing with. From Sailor Moonblood at Arithmetric, a.k.a. Eliana from Eliana Girls Gone Canon. Own to Hannah for being there when the magic happened. True. Thanks, what we Eliana. were all thinking. We'll never forgive her for that. True. <laughs> from at Brendan Beefish, who is some loser you guys shouldn't even bother paying attention to. Who was also there. Who was also there, and I'll never forgive Jeff for that either. True. Own to the monkeys on the Isle of Cedars for continuing to own headspace in Victorian's very big brain. Let the monkeys shit themselves at the sound when it rolls across the Isle of Cedars. I love that too. He hasn't let it go. He's still thinking about the monkeys and how much they pissed him God off. Damn it. Weeks later when he's going into a battle, he's still like, oh, this will show the monkeys. <laughs> Dude, let it go. Headspace in Victorian's very big brain. <laughs> That's really funny. And last but not least, and a good segue into what we're going to talk about next, at John Webster Film says, own to the next podcast when you guys return to A Feast with Dragons so I can jump back in. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we've talked about that yet. We haven't. You guys got to have I the know that actually know that we haven't talked about it yet. <laughs> you so confidently were setting it up there, Hannah. I was like, did we talk about that? No, we didn't. Not even once. Uh, thanks for sitting in your owns, everybody. That's awesome. And you might be sitting in your owns for Feast of Dragons again very soon. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, who knows? This is a weird time for Game of Thrones right now. Literally in the middle of this episode, so deep in what might be the long, potentially forever offseason, we get two different show updates while recording. So anything could happen. Truly. Anything can happen. But if you want to send in your own for either of these chapters, if you want to send in your own for potentially the new prequel if you want to just send us whatever you can find us on social media at game of bones on twitter on instagram on facebook or you can email us contact at game of bones.com yeah 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 uh emmett we need you to give an info dump right now to everyone catch everybody up on not a cast how far are you guys in how many episodes you've made how they can listen to it Absolutely. So I'm a co-host on the Not A Cast podcast with Brendan B. Fish, a.k.a. Jeff Hartline. We're going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. We are up, we're early in A Clash of Kings now, right around the last episode we just recorded was on A Clash of Kings Aria 4, where she has her uh, big battle by the God's Eye with uh, the Lannister man that ends up killing poor Yorn of the Night's Watch. Our latest our latest episode available to the public up at notacastasoiaf.podbean.com was on uh, Daenerys' first chapter in A Clash of Kings, where she's crossing the desert, the Red Waste, to Karth. And uh, we just had a great guest, Mighty Isabel, from the fandom on for that. We've had a lot of guests on lately, which has been awesome. So you can check, check us out at notacastasoiaf.podbean.com. That's where all our publicly available episodes are. Check out uh, our, our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. We have a lot of great reward tiers set up in early episodes and exclusive episodes, so check that out. And you can follow us at notacastasoiaf on Twitter. And you can find me just at Poor Quentin on Twitter. PQ. Just still my beating heart, honestly. Everything you and Jeff have done with the series so far has just been, I mean, from the moment that you guys started, we knew it was going to be, I mean, I was excited. I was like, this is perfect. The, the simulation couldn't have spat out a better option. And you guys have stuck to it. And it's just, it keeps getting better. You know, it, keep, it keeps getting better. 
And uh, I'm really excited that we have the the series continuing in whatever form it does with the prequel. I already forgot what it was called. Let me click on this uh, <laughs> tab. Uh, House of the Dragon, Fire Will Rain. I'm so excited we have that and these two books left, not to mention everything else in uh, the GR inverse or whatever we decide to stick into a box that says this is okay for us to talk about as friends. I will continue to do that as long as possible. Absolutely, buddy. I've always loved loved talking with you guys and we were standing on the shoulders of a lot of great work when we started our podcast, including you guys. So thank you so much for having me back. I loved it. Thanks for coming. You can listen to our new podcast before you leave. Yeah, we have. If you haven't already, we have another show called It Really Makes You Think. Emmett, we need you to be on that show too, eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love to. We're shooting it in VR now. No so, yeah. I mean, everything's different. You can find that on YouTube, Spotify, Instagram, and iTunes. <laughs> and I can't think of anything else, but you can look up. It really makes you think. Yeah, you just search, I think, pretty much anywhere. It really makes you think. And we've got eight episodes now. So we're like two episodes away from that being the only thing, or at least the first thing that pops up whenever you type that in. So getting closer to the mark. That's it. That's it. Thanks again, Emmett. You're the best. Love hanging with you. Always. My pleasure. Happy and Halloween. Yeah, happy Halloween. We'll see everybody soon.